0: On the Dallas Opera Network, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh,
1: let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, Get your Copeland fanfare ready. We induct posthumously this time a mezzo-soprano into the hallowed corridors of the OBS Hall of Fame. Plus, two-minute drill. The New York Public Library gets a huge opera donation. Take that, Metropolitan Opera. (laughs) Oliver Camacho, how is life?
2: Aren't all our Hall of Famers posthumous?
1: No, we've had, we did
3: John Add. No, did Leontine John Ad. Price is still alive. Yes. Yeah. Oh, true. Come on, true. All God. Yeah, You don't okay, have yeah. an encyclopedic or memory of every single episode <laughs> we have ever done? You don't remember that Nadine Sierra okay, episode so. that I still have war flashbacks <laughs> about? <laughs> That's a little in-joke yeah, for all you listeners out there.
1: The the mane on Matt Cummings just gets longer and longer.
4: <laughs> We're at full man bun level. I, I haven't decided if I'm going to keep it once I come out of quarantine, but like I'm probably going to keep it, guys. Congratulations.
1: Ooh. Weston Williams got the, the scruff and the beard going on over there. Yes,
3: I had a mistake shaving, and now it's shorter than expected. But uh, I think it adds to my boyish charm,
1: which I lean into on the show. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave, what's new in your world?
5: Um, I, too, lean into my boyish charm. Uh, no, I uh, – actually, I'm leaning into my lady charm because there's some really cool uh, lady sports news right now. Uh, so the uh, – I don't know if you're at – you're probably not as familiar with women's gymnastics like I am,
4: but uh, – But you should be.
5: But you absolutely should be, first of all. We can talk all day long about the 92 finals. Um, But – the, uh, the European Artistic Gymnastics Championships were this weekend, and the German competitors uh, made quite the statement by wearing pants as <gasps> part of their competition uniform.
3: Shocking. So,
5: yes, The yes, Hose? They- <laughs> D. Halsey, yeah. Uh, they basically, they, uh, in Basel, they were taking, as they say, a, a stand against sexualization in gymnastics. So the women's competitive uniforms are usually very high cut on the legs. Uh, but when they're working in practice, they're wearing, you know, sort of ankle, sorry, uh, hip to ankle uh, leotards. And they were like, why wouldn't we do this in competition? And they were like, we, when we were little girls competing, the high cut stuff didn't, it was no big deal. But when we started to mature, when we went through puberty, more and more of that made us more uncomfortable, and we're not going to take it anymore. So they wore pants, and now it's like revolutionizing the sport. Pants
1: that is awesome. Just next, we need awesome. pockets
2: in those pants. I would, <laughs> we can only yeah. hope that would ruin the line, Oliver. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the NFL draft is. Thursday of this week in Cleveland. I just remember the year that it was in Chicago, and all the posters around town said Chicago is on the clock. And I just right next that to the so Art cool.
2: Institute and across the street from the Fine Arts Building.
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of my enduring memories of that draft. Of course, um, the NBA All Star Game was in Chicago, right as the pandemic was breaking down, as well. I don't know how the Bears are going to end up doing. I don't know how the Cowboys are going to end up doing in the draft either. Let's talk some
0: opera. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer. Our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera.
4: This week, we are honoring the incredible late- Krista Ludwig, who was such a versatile singer, even by the standard even by the standards of her generation, where you were really expected to be able to sing anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Are Herbach and Mozart the way we would hear them done today? Of course not. But they are still just so gorgeous in their vocalism. And she sang everything from those to Carmen to Dalila to Octavian and Carabino to Ortrude, all the way to little bits of Zolda. And really? Almost all of it holds up, if not all of it, gotta say.
2: So she has such a huge recorded legacy that we have to pick and choose so we can just focus on a couple of things because she did so many things well. We are not talking about her concert work. We are not talking about her recordings albums of leaders today. Albums albums, yeah, of yeah. leader. <laughs> we are just talking about opera today. I wish we could do multiple episodes on her legacy. But um, one of the roles that she is associated with, and maybe the role that she sang or she recorded the most was uh, Leonora in Beethoven's opera Fidelio. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we've talked about this role in another context, but it is one of the most difficult things ever written for this fach, for this sort of dramatic soprano or soprano-falcone fach. And as you know, Krista Ludwig was a mezzo-soprano, but she did pick and choose some Soprano roles, and she sang them so healthily that Mm. it's hard to believe that she did not make a career out of singing just those roles. Um, Leonora has some of the most difficult music, but she also has some of Beethoven's most lyrical music. And I would like to jump right into a clip here. For those of you watching the Dallas Opera Network version of our show, we will um, curate a playlist on YouTube of these clips Uh, But if you're listening to the podcast, you're going to hear them integrated. Uh, This is from the movie that was made or the film version of the Deutsch opera Opera performance of Fidelio from 1963, which starred James King as um, Florestan and Walter Berry as Pizarro. We will begin with uh, a section from the aria Abseulicher, this is the most Mozartian lyrical section of this aria, Komm Hoffnung. Matt sung with such, like, Mozartian elegance, uh, such beautiful tone, and then that ridiculous line that ascends up to, I don't know what that is, a B or something like that. Such <laughs> it's a, high, what it such is. Such a crazy, yeah. <laughs> ridiculous, <laughs> it's, so it's not fair to have written that line, and for her to have sung it so in tune, and then to bloom on that note, on top of that, most sopranos just sound tired when
4: they get to that. I, Yeah, I've listened to a lot of re- recordings of that aria, and it's really rare, rare that you have someone who ends it with that kind of freshness
2: mm-hmm.
4: and makes it through without that last note being either approximated or strained or both.
2: So another, uh, to just be the opposite end of the spectrum of this role of Fidelio or Leonora, is the i guess it's the quartet scene where um, fidelio jumps out from hiding and said but i'm his wife you know and it's just one of the most declamatory exciting and really frightening things to hear somebody sing mm-hmm. so from this same 1963 performance uh here is Krista Ludwig uh declaring that she in fact is a woman <laughs> This is opera, I think, at its greatest. It's so hokey. It's so um, (laughs) unbelievable. It's like that moment, like that coup de grace moment or the deus ex machina moment, you know. Uh, But she does it with sincerity and she looks so great in this. And just the whole thing with the you know, with the open chest and the chin up, like I love when that happens in opera, when an artist can just open up and be like, it's just so pompous. But (laughs) It works. It works so well in this show. Uh, And then you hear the offstage chorus and, you know, it's like the end of the war, you know. The crowd Um, goes wild. Yes, it's just such a great (laughs) moment. And yeah, another super difficult thing to just come out of nowhere and just be attacking those notes above the passaggio. Just nailing them over and over again and singing really difficult words like, murder or something like that i don't even know, forget the text but it's all like you jerk you, you know all those german swear words from the- <laughs> and, <laughs> from the- die cult- and <laughs> she's a singer who has
4: really very clear diction but never mm, lets yeah. it get in the way of her vocalism like throughout her entire range you can tell what words they are and she's a native german speaker so obviously it's great but uh the there's never any kind of constriction or contortion. like It just feels like an absolutely natural progression from speech into singing from her. Uh, and that's what I really love about this next clip, which is something that can be a bit of a barn burner. Um, and that <laughs> is the role of Ortrude from Lohengrin. Uh, normally I'm not the person on the show who likes to wax poetic about Wagner. Weston almost always has the that, uh, <laughs> I'm
3: surprised you stole this moment from me, <laughs> that bass
4: covered. Um, and Orchard is a bit of a complicated character because it can be anything from like a growler contra- contralto to like a pasted soprano who doesn't want to have to sing high notes in their own roles anymore and, uh, can just like coast on the camp of it. And Krista Ludwig is neither of them. I love Lohengrin, and I love the music of this character. Uh, she is a medieval witch, and she has no time for your nonsense. <laughs> uh, this And this comes from the very beginning of Act 2, where Ortrud is sly and menacing, and Ludwig manages to be both of those without giving up an ounce of her vocal glamour. Um, she is tempting Elsa, the Soprano in a kind of cat-and-mouse game to undermine her after uh, the night Lohengrin rode into town and, and started protecting Elza. Uh, and so Ortrud is going to invoke the pagan gods that give her her power as a witch. Uh, and that alone is worth the price of admission for this opera. Take a listen to this clip of Krista Ludwig singing Ortrud's, course, uh, Ortrud's, Ortrud's Curse. Say that ten times fast. Uh, and this is from a performance <laughs> in ask. Buenos Aires in 1964. Oh. her range and the sheer force of those high notes are supernatural. And, and the Cruella de Vil laugh at the yeah. end of
3: <laughs> And the crowd going wild, too, in the I middle just, of, uh, of, of Wagner. When does no that rush. happen? Yeah.
2: When has that ever happened before? It's it crazy. not Wagner's
3: ghost personally rose from his grave and came to uh, fight her, but she won.
4: And he said, you know what? Normally, I wouldn't go for this kind of stuff, <laughs> but you
3: are in the Opera Box score hall of fame, so
4: I, I have to let you get away with it. <laughs> um, and just I mentioned earlier that versatility is really what I think of when I think of Krista Ludwig. And so, of course, I have to go from Wagner all the way to Strauss uh, to show that kind of versatility. But just <laughs> the differences between the demands of a role like Ortrude and one like another uh, somewhat signature role of hers, Octavian, um, it just really comes becomes clear when you listen to this clip of Viduvarst, uh, uh, And this is a clip of her singing the vi- This is the very first singing that you hear in the opening of the entire opera. And this is coming from the complete studio recording uh, conducted by Herbert von Karajan. Contrast the histrionic power of Orchard that we heard before with this kind of like tenderness and capriciousness. Uh, this is one of her earlier recordings. Her voice is so fresh, but still really rich all the way mm. from bottom to top. And she never sings, never has to sing anything less than like full throated, absolutely supported tone, no matter like where in the scale she's singing or what note before she sang.
1: Two operas I will never get sick of will be Rosenkavalier and Lohengrin. I could watch those <laughs> again and again. Very and again.
4: atmospheric choices for you, George. They're,
1: they're really, they're just such great pieces of music theater. Weston, you started with neither Strauss nor Wagner for your Shockingly,
3: pick. yeah. Well, I mean, as a Strauss and Wagner guy, I have a lot of Crystal Ludwig in my, uh, bouncing around in my, uh, my old iTunes, uh, Apple Music, whatever the kids are listening to now. I do that. I'm the young one, so. So I got to be hip with these things. Um, but uh, I decided to go a slightly different track with my pick. Um, I, I mean, because I, I think it's interesting because she's uh, if you ever like read an interview she had after her singing career, they're incredibly hilariously blunt it's like this like deadpan german humor and you're never quite sure if she's joking and is just like really insulted a famous opera singer or not who knows um I, i'm just gonna give you a couple of good ones just to uh send her off in, in style uh uh my favorite quote as a wagner strauss guy uh, is all the italian operas of rossini Donizetti, and verdi is that really art <laughs> And, and another good yes. one is singing was just a job. I don't miss it. And all these things I think are very funny considering what I like to listen to Krista Ludwig for is how engaged she is with these roles obviously she had the voice to back up anything she did but the dramatic uh, the dramaticism in her voice is really really extraordinary and i think you can really tell when she's engaged with a, with a role she really uh, she she said in multiple interviews she really only Respects Strauss or Wagner, but I highly suspect that she all she made an exception for uh, Béla Bartok in his one and only opera, Bluebeard's Castle. Uh, and I wanted to talk about this recording because, A, it's near and dear to my heart. It was my first um, recording of Bluebeard's Castle. Um, but it's also, I, I would put it up against any other recording or performance I've seen. It's a studio recording. It was recorded in 1966 with her then-husband, Walter Berry, um, conducted by István Krizets, Um, And it's, it's a really special recording. And a lot of that is because of the way Krista Ludwig really feeds off of of the dramatic situation that's going on. You can feel the fear in her voice, the confidence, the wildness, the moment where she opens the window and door five and just lets it all out. And you, you, you really, really feel it. And because I think partially because they were married at that point, there's a certain uh, chemistry there in that recording that you don't really get. I feel like when you listen to a, a bluebeard's castle, you tend to have, um oh this is a Bluebeard recording or this is a Judith recording uh, you know like like I love like the Trojanos recording but like the 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 Bluebeard on that one is like hey eh, he's fine you know uh, but this is like the one where everything like meets up and Crystal Ludwig is there present in every moment giving not just a lyrical performance um that sounds great with her somewhat unusual range but also just like it 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 works on every every possible level. It's my go-to opera, uh, introductory opera, actually. I have loaned out my CD of Bluebeard's Castle with Krista Ludwig and Walter Berry to a number of people saying, listen to this, um, just because it's just absolutely amazing. Uh, And if you are listening to the podcast version, we'll play a little clip now uh, from the fourth door opening from Bluebeard's Castle. During the uh, edit there, Oliver informed me that it was Istvan Kertes, the conductor. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed yeah. it. I apologize to our Eastern European listeners. Hungarian. Hungarian, Hungarian <laughs> uh, native,
4: basically. Hungarian
3: um, stamp. But I mean,
1: you're going to be on a posted stamp, man, if you're not uh, careful. I so mean, that was the recording
2: him. that your parents put in your stocking when you were five years old, right?
3: I think I literally did get this for Christmas. So, <laughs> oh, <right>. yes. <laughs> It's such a good recording. It's, uh, it's an older recording. There's a lot of like extra noise in the background, but the, the atmosphere, everything is firing off perfectly, and it could not have been done without someone with the vocal dramatic chops of Krista Ludwig, whom I will personally miss very, very
1: much. Krista hmm. Ludwig being inducted into the OBS Hall of Fame. Ashley, what recording is in your Krista Ludwig Christmas stocking? (laughs)
5: uh i didn't get nearly as many as our sweet sweet weston did um my my contribution to this is a little bit on on her personality as opposed to her artistry although it is definitely about her artistry as well it's
1: we call it color commentary in the big
5: commentary yeah yeah you know the thing you come to all one take hard gray for um so (laughs) one of the things that i so the singers of this era so many of these women, especially the Vets of Sopranos, were, they sing everything. You know, like, like as we've seen for the last, you know, 15, 20 minutes, she could do, at various points in her career, she could sing just about anything. We also know that she's, you know, known for being blunt and and honest. And, you know, when she left the career, you know, I, I don't really miss it. Um, One of the things that she was not really, didn't have that same notoriousness for was, was the divaness of it all. Because there's the divas that are, like, a real pain and inconvenience. Mm-hmm. And then there are the people who are just sort of blunt and specific and can and and advocate for themselves. And that's the that's the kind of hardness and the, the no, I'm going to not curse her, the no flips given that she has was like, <laughs> nope, I, you know, these are the things that I can do. This is what I'm hearing that. But it wasn't like I'm showing up 30 hours late for this thing and inconveniencing all of these people. So she wasn't a diva in that regard. She was a diva in the fact that she could literally do anything you put in front of her. But she was very clear uh, in, in her musicianship and in her collaboration with other musicians about her limits. And so one of the things that came across my, uh, my screen over the last couple of days, is this really fascinating, uh, clip. There's a couple of different versions of it, but the one that I have is from what looks like to be an educational film of this, of this time in the, in the early seventies. It's a rehearsal with her, uh, Leonard Bernstein and the Israeli Philharmonic. And they're doing rehearsals for, uh, Mahler's Lied von der Erde. And Renee Kala was there, but he's not in this clip at all. Um, so they're, they're rehearsing one of the most intense parts. And she, uh, she straight up, you know, she tries to go with Bernstein. He He's doing this crazy breakneck tempo that he says is the only way he's ever done it. But it is fast. I mean, <laughs> that thing goes. And she's trying to keep up. And you can tell that she's she's really trying to be a team player here and she's really going for it. But then she stops and she advocates and she stands up for herself, not in a bitchy way, not in a diva way, but like I'm doing the best I can and clearly we're not meeting on this. So she, then they get into this bilingual argument. So she stops and she runs over to the podium and she's talking in German and he's speaking in English, but they all are, you know, understanding each other at the same point. I just think it's so cool that like, She goes and she stands up for herself. He pushes back in kind of a, you know, notorious Lenny B way, which is a little bit rude. Uh, And she gets really exasperated. And so the second take, she like has her hand on her hip. I know this is going to be a podcast meeting too, but I have my hand on my hip. And she's singing and she's (laughs) got the score and she's like, I'll try. Because he clearly didn't hear her. She said what she needed. He didn't hear her. And he went back in and did it again the same way. And she's like, okay, fine. So she tries to like go with him, but it's like, no, I just, I cannot... I cannot do it this way. And so he comes up to her after the first one and is like, this is so much slower than I ever do it. And then there's a quick cut to the orchestra and all of the faces on the orchestra are like, like you can tell (laughs) it is awkward. It is so uncomfortable. And then, you know, she tries it again. And then he comes over and says what I'm assuming he thought was comforting, but doesn't really come off that way. He says, it doesn't matter. You know, who can hear the words anyway? (laughs) Why? 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 Um, So they do end up getting it to work, and what I love at the very end of this three-minute clip is that she's clearly and visibly exasperated, but you can tell that she's really trying, and she's advocated for herself, and even though she's frustrated, she pops off these incredible tones that are very, very Krista, and it's just... For me, it's such an encapsulation of who she must have been in rehearsal. Like, she shows up, she's done the work, she stands up for herself, she's a team player, and then she's amazing and does all of this stuff, even in the face of what we will call, you know, sort of collaboration adversity. Uh, And it ended up coming together, it ended up being a really beautiful recording that Gramophone uh, talked about as passionate and satisfying. But I just love how this is just a note of who you know Crystal was.
0: This is so much slower than we than I ever do it. The image never comes here. We haven't even come to that. Okay, before 14, please. Five bars. La... Three... Four Our Skles of the we wenn die A It doesn't matter, nobody knows, you know. Who can hear the words anyway? The main thing is to hear hi to an octopi. Hi!
1: And at least we, we know you're singing, <laughs>
0: otherwise, there's no way to think about it. Okay, the same thing, one more time. This is always impossible. Nobody can be heard in this. Five before 14. Yeah, The same place. <sus> <much>
1: Christopher Ludwig joining the hallowed corridors of the OBS Hall of Fame. Again, the full playlist for all of our team's recommendations on our website, operaboxscore.com. Two-minute drill coming up in a few minutes. Before that, a little more sports talk. Ashley, the Kansas City Chiefs' Sean Culkin, is doing what with his salary?
5: He is converting his entire salary for next season, which is uh, $920,000. He's converting it into Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. There, there have been other players that have been converting like parts oh, of their salaries to Bitcoin. But he's, according to whoever's keeping this record, the first NFL player to fully dedicate an entire <laughs> salary gotta get and, those
4: and, nfts while they're hot
0: yo
5: gotta gotta get those pictures of giselle standing in front of a picture of giselle apparently his dad was like really into you know into heavy metals in terms of not like white snake but like actual heavy metals and like putting money into that sort of stuff uh meanwhile i'm going to be converting my entire tdo salary into gold futures so that i can play too
3: i think i'll invest in lead that seems uh, re- as reasonable as bitcoin to me
5: uh, yes like but the that's the that goes over
1: That's because you're into alchemy, Weston. (laughs) The Super League in Europe, we hardly knew ye. It was supposed to be this conglomeration of 20 European soccer clubs, 15 that would never be uh, relegated from the Super League, and then five other teams that would sort of rotate in and out, audition, essentially. And as soon as the English Premier League teams, six of them, pulled out of the Super League— That was pretty much it.
3: You could say that the English Premier League was the kryptonite of the Super League.
1: It was indeed. This allows me to change my background as we go to the two-minute drill.
0: This just in, the two-minute drill.
1: All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week.
5: A recent New York Times roundup of classical music podcasts has undoubtedly raised controversy after not including Opera Box Score. The article does, however, give well deserved credit to Friend of the Show, Garrett McCrean's Triloquy, and to Enemy of the Show, Ariaco. <laughs> we'll put a link to the article on our website in case you want to listen to other opera podcasts.
3: Perish the thought. Lois Kirschenbaum, the opera superfan who died last month at age 88, has left behind a treasure trove of hundreds of autographs and opera-related memorabilia. The collection has been left to New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center and not to the Metropolitan Opera, which banned her in the late, in the 1990s from going backstage to pursue autographs.
2: Detroit Symphony Orchestra Vice President Eric Roenmark called out a letter that expressed, quote, dismay at the orchestra's broadening composer diversity. A patron penned a letter complaining about the orchestra's offensive season featuring black artists. Runmark took to social media to share the letter from the anonymous self-professed patron with the caption, quote, you win some, you lose some. Sounds like a real
4: peach there. Uh, the royal college of music in london manhattan school of music royal danish academy of music and the university of music and performing arts in vienna have teamed up to create the global conservatoire an online pilot program that creates a global college town for musicians so basically a super league that is actually going to happen
1: the music director of opera liege conductor speranza scapucci has been named chevalier des arts et des Lettres by the french minister of culture of the honorifics, Capucci said she, quote, will always seek to serve culture at the highest level to deserve this distinction. Honest Baroncore, important chevalier, des art and his opera podcasts.
2: Spain's Opera de Oviedo has voiced a disappointment with the unequal distribution of government aid to theaters that have been shut down due to the pandemic. The company reportedly received less than half the amount of Bilbao opera. Despite Oviedo having presented twenty more performances over the course of the pandemic, Opera Box Score also notes that it has presented more podcasts than Aria Code over the course of the pandemic.
1: It's pronounced Aria Code. <laughs> this week's yellow cards. <laughs>
4: Italy. Venice's Teatro La Fenice and the Maggio Musicale Fiorentino are back in business as of April 26th after being on lockdown due
3: to COVID-19. The Schweiz! Open House Zurich has announced its reopening on May 1st for a limited audience of 50 people.
5: USA! Lincoln Center has announced the official opening of Restart Stages, the initiative to bring back the performing arts in a safe way on May 10th. The free performances will include selections of musicals, dance, opera, and everything in between.
2: This week's red cards.
1: Germany, in a particularly rough week for the country, Deutsche Nationaltheater Weimar, Staatsoper Unter den Linden, Komische Oper Berlin, Baden-Baden-Feschwilhaus, Staatstheater Cottbus, and Staatsoper Hamburg have all announced cancellations until at least June. Bonn has thrown in the Handtuch completely ending the season early and announcing it won't reopen till
5: August. France! Opera de Toulon has canceled Traviata and Paris Opera has canceled Tosca under increasing restrictions from the French government. Loosened restrictions for French opera houses are unlikely until at least mid-May.
3: Italy! Opera de Roma has postponed performances of Luisa Miller after a number of chorus members tested positive for COVID-19. Poland! Polish national opera has extended its closure
4: until May 3rd, and the Adasari International Vocal Artistry competition has been pushed back to late August.
1: Over to the disabled list, oh, it's been a while since we've had a DL. Nadine Sierra has bowed out of the June performances of Sanambala at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées due to illness. New production directed by Rolando Villazon, conducted by Ricardo Fritza, will now star Pretty Yende as that sleepwalker who also happens to sing Cabalettas.
2: Exit stage right. Former Abbey Road engineer Christopher Parker has passed away at the age of 95. He joined EMI in 1951 to engineer some of the studio's very earliest stereo recordings and went on to engineer some of the most iconic recordings of the 20th century that include singers like Dame Janet Baker, Maria Callas, Montserrat Caballé, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf and the late Christa Ludwig. Swiss composer Rudolf Kelterborn has passed away in Switzerland at age
4: 89. He served as a lecturer at a number of music colleges in Germany and in Switzerland, and also served as the head of the music division of Swiss German radio from 1974 to 1980. Kelterborn's works include five operas, orchestral works, chamber music, and some vocal music as well. His four-act opera Der Kirschgarten inaugurated the newly rebuilt Zurich Opera House in
3: 1984. Welsh baritone Eric Roberts has died. After making his professional debut as Papageno with Welsh National Opera, Roberts went on to sing with a number of opera companies across the UK, Denmark, Italy, and the Netherlands, as well as the US. He was also known for musicals and worked on radio and television as an actor, singer, and narrator.
5: Italian soprano Lucia Naviglio has passed from COVID-19 complications. She was 63. She first caught the attention of composer Nino Rota singing in Cuesta Regia from Turandot without knowing how to read music. She went on to become a staple of regional theaters throughout Italy, conquering the lead roles in Trovatore, Nabucco, Carmen, and *Cavalleria Rusticana.
2: And on this day, April 26th, in 1738, it was the premiere of George Frederick Handel's opera Xerxes in London. In 1784, Salieri's opera Les Danaides premiered in Paris. In 1925, it was the birth of Austrian coloratura soprano Vilma Lipp. In 1935, American composer Conrad Suse was born. Happy birthday to English soprano Patrizia Cavella, who was born in 1953. And in 1966, it was the final performance at the Metropolitan Opera by soprano Licia Albanese, who lived another five decades.
1: And that is your Two Minute Drill.
0: That was Et
4: Incarnatus Est from the Mozart C minor Mass sung by the great, late Vilma Lipp. Uh, and the she's accompanied by the Pro Music Orchestra and Ferdinand Grossmann conducting.
3: Good thing they didn't, the anti-music orchestra didn't come <laughs> what out. What
2: about <laughs> that Lucha Naviglio? I think you actually, it's easier to sing in Cuesta Regia if you don't know how high it is because you can't read music. <laughs> <laughs> what you don't know can't hurt you. <laughs> exactly. So... Matt and I were talking about how we are now in an age where there's nothing material, there's nothing tangible. And this treasure trove of autographs and photographs of um, Lois Kirchenbaum, I would really like to see that. I love that stuff. Mm. I love seeing singers in their go home clothing, their you know, their furs and their half taken off makeup, and you know the camera flashes from those cameras that had flashes that really made your forehead shiny and your eyes like oh, like yes. that. You know, <laughs> I want to see opera singers in those pictures because now we have the selfie and everybody looks good in a picture with a fan. But back then you really captured, I think, something about those performances. The only and benefit shame,
4: though to if there had been smart day, smartphones at the early days of Lois Kirshenbaum's opera attendance is you would we would have video of what it was like to be another person true. at backstage. Just Although, watching that happen.
3: Knowing her, I wouldn't put it past her to like sneak in like a full-on video camera. This this I was reading about her. She's she's kind of fascinating. Like uh she like she between like for since the 1950s, she like basically like cornered every singer she could find, and she has autographs, hundreds and hundreds of autographs of like big names, small names, notes on every performance. She usually didn't pay for tickets; she just like <laughs> knew people who would like let her in. You know, she wouldn't buy anything at the at the at the shop. She would sneak in a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a coffee, which is not something I've ever done at the opera, but not yet uh, anyway. It's I- coming back. Yeah, it's uh, I've, ne- I've never done it not even once um not even a little bit. But uh if I did, I would respect that. Uh but she she just it, it, I feel like there's an alternate universe where I'm this lady. <laughs> and uh this is uh, this is just you know it's it's a fascinating look back into n- specifically New York City opera culture. And I think that uh, that there's something very significant and important about that because I feel like we all grew up, um, or at least maybe I grew up. I, I'm a little bit younger than most of you. Um, really hearing about all of these, you know. <laughs> well, um, I mean, we're all younger than all of them, anyway. Uh, but we basically le- like grew up like hearing about this culture, and I, I, and and it's always something I heard sort of secondhand. And I feel like you know there is some some magic to that generation of singers that I feel like having these sorts of um, memorabilia just sticking around really just feels good to really connect that timeline of opera. And I feel like I'm just insulting Oliver now, Well, the but, uh, Metropolitan
2: Opera is kicking themselves <laughs> because now
3: that they're ever going to get that stuff, they're going to have to pay. Exactly. I mean, yeah. It's pretty delightful. Anything that inconveniences the Met is pretty fine by me. Well, I just point.
1: love the New York Public Library system ever since I saw Ghostbusters. And if you, uh, you can go In to the, the Performing Arts, hey, the Performing <laughs> Arts collection is so great. It's right across the street from the main, like, NYPL uh, HQ. That what I'm just so glad that that stuff has ended up there. Uh, Ashley, problems in Detroit. Uh,
5: Yeah, basically all lives matter in letter form to the Detroit Symphony.
4: (laughs) How dare you? How dare you?
5: Listen, listen. So, okay, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the nutshell of this, there was a patron Disgruntled, uh, who wrote to the Detroit Symphony artistic leadership to let them know that they—I don't know if this—I don't know the gender of this uh, person—would not be renewing their seasons or ever coming ever again to (laughs) a DSO uh, a DSO performance—and signed it a disappointed past patron. The shade of it all. Uh, Oh no. And and the reason I I I called it uh, ALM—I won't say that again because people get really upset when that phrase is uttered because it's kind of gross. I find it offensive and discriminatory that you are planning your upcoming season focusing on a particular ethnic group i feel you are doing so just to jump on the current bandwagon i'm playing the diversity card here's where it gets into the uh, the the alm part um just consider us all as people and humans i feel you could and should structure your program uh, for the musicians and their contribution to the art and style, whether they are black, blue, yellow, plaid, etc., oh so it, it's just—it's it like just,
3: a bingo card for like like uh, c- contemporary racism, just all the way down.
5: It's it gets grosser the more you read of it, and yeah. what I here's why I think this is important is that. So often, cultural organizations, uh, you know, we're talking about Detroit Symphony. I think there's a lot of crossover between them and Michigan Opera Theater, definitely in their audiences. Cultural organizations at these levels in these major cities really lean into what their boards and their patrons desire. They operate in those Mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. What Detroit did was they listened to their community. They listened to the actual stats and populations of who lives in Detroit, they met the moment and they said, we're going to focus on some composers that all belong to a specific cultural group that haven't been celebrated in the way that they should. People that have felt marginalized and haven't seen themselves in classical music, we're going to bring them in and we're going to do that. And then one, I'm going to go out on a limb and say white patron writes this really cranky letter. Um, (laughs) So it'll be very interesting to see if this becomes kind of a watershed moment for other cultural organizations, if they are... If they're going to be willing to, you know, sort of be bold. We, we, we see people that are making all of these, like, you know, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, etc. If they start getting pushback like this from some of their patrons, will they, will they back down? Or will they be awesome like Eric and be like, sorry, ma'am, we're going to do the right thing for once.
4: <laughs> we're going to be gruntled. You can be disgruntled all you want, but you won't ungrunt we're gonna, us.
5: We're going to gruntle.
1: Weston, they're also feeling pretty gruntled in Oviedo.
5: And I think they're ungruntled. No, I, they're they're is the term. still
3: disgruntled. <laughs> there's there's definitely a suffix in front of the uh, the gruntled. So this is a very kind of odd situation. And in, in full disclosure, I don't know a lot about how Spain works. Um, but
5: the of <laughs> the, 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 Quote the is, episode? I don't know the, how Spain works. I don't oh, know how West Spain Spartans.
3: works. Um, but the issue seems to be that uh, um, Oviedo has been uh, feeling a little slighted by the distribution of emergency funds from the government, um, especially in comparison to Bilbao Opera, which was able to put on uh, seven total performances compared to Oviedo's twenty-seven performances, uh, and then of course both of those pale in comparison with a lot of the really big, heavy-hitting opera companies in the U.S. in the uh, in Spain in terms of how much money they get, and this I think brings up kind of an interesting and weird sort of conundrum because it almost feels it feels a little strange first of all to be talking about getting money money from the government to help us through covid period in this country Mm -hmm. but there's there's something very interesting about the idea that we did more during the pandemic and therefore we deserve more I think it's very strange. I think it, it it's it's I again, I don't know too much about the situation. I could be misreading it some uh, somewhat, but it feels to me like uh like a um this this weird mentality of we put our singers at risk more, therefore and we, and we did more things. We should deserve a larger return. It's not it's reducing the the actors and the singers and the and the and the stage crew and the orchestra members to, uh, well, we did more, you know, so we deserve more. I, I think that there's kind of, I think this might be a problem occurring around the world before too long as the pandemic, knock on wood, winds down where people start comparing and contrasting, well, who di- who did the right thing? Who deserves more? who is that money going to and i think this is something we're going to have to reckon with more and more uh coming up pretty soon
1: well we'll I... see how those metrics play out
5: can i jump uh, in here for a hot second oh, absolutely i, I kind of think they have a point uh if you're hustling that much harder than bigger companies who probably started out with more assets than you did and you've been r- literally creating more oh, in this really trying time and doing more with less I think there's a little bit of a reason to be crabby about that, especially if you already started out with a smaller pool, you've been spending that pool, you've been doing more work. You know, again, I, I too don't know that much about how Spain works, but just on its surface, you know, like, like if you've got two church musicians and the workload doubles for one and doesn't for the other, but they get paid the same, you know, I, I can, I can relate to feeling frustrated with that inequity.
1: You are not frustrated uh, about the work coming out of Abbey Road Studios, the famous Abbey Road she's Studios. She's very gruntled with it. And I'm, she's I'm, very gruntled with I'm, it.
5: I'm deeply yes. gruntled. You know, yeah, Christopher it's, Parker. Christopher Parker. He, he was such a fascinating individual just across the board. Um, this new story came across my desk and I, I did a little bit of diving into it. And just it, his life started out so fascinating even in the beginning. Quick little point. When he was 14, uh, to avoid the bombing in London, Gladys, he went to stay with his sister in Penarth. This is all in the UK, where he met 11-year-old Eva Grunbaum, who had recently arrived as a Jewish refugee from Würzburg. They married in 1951 and were partners for 71 years until her death. So, like, that's super cool. Uh, He was in the Navy for a little bit before he went to Abbey Road. There are all of these really interesting um, things about... Well, first of all, his recording techniques are lauded as revolutionary. He kind of came into the scene right when a couple of, you know, really big innovations were happening. They were moving from wax tape to the new form. uh, Not long after he started at EMI, they started getting into true stereo sound recordings. Uh, And it also kind of coincided with a lot of the golden age of singers, some of which we've talked about today, like Our Lady Krista. There's this very interesting... uh, anecdote. There are tons, but this is the one that I'll leave you with. Uh, so he's doing, uh, he's doing a thing with Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, Gerald Moore's at the piano. Uh, and they come in and during the rehearsal, I was in the control room standing near the loudspeaker. And I said to, uh, Walter Legge, he said, you know, I can't understand a word that Schwarzkopf is singing. And he didn't understand, uh, why Legge was getting so frustrated. And he goes, you know, she's just got a strong German accent. She just, you know, she's a German singer trying to sing English, but I can't understand a word of it. Not realizing that Schwarzkopf was Leggy's wife
3: <laughs> <Oops. laughs> whoopsie Daisy
5: but he was I mean every there are a ton of little retrospectives out there that you can read about him So many people even uh, Abby wrote itself there's a great one on article or a great article on gramophone as well. he just seemed like such a gem of a human. His recording mm. techniques were revolutionary. Uh, he had his hand in pretty much every recording in the classical world that EMI put out for a clean 40 year span. Just seems like an amazing human who will be missed.
3: And I I, I will also say that, you know, I feel like they're working as the saying specifically as the audio visual editor editor here, uh, the amount of work and knowledge of physics and gut instinct and uh, and knowledge of electronics that goes into recording anything acoustic. Particularly classical music, it's a whole different beast because you have so many instruments that have to blend together. That's incredibly difficult, yeah. um, and you have to take into account, you know, what the microphones individually sound like, the placement, the uh, what you want the experience of the listener to be. Um, whether you're bringing stuff up artificially, what the it's it's incredibly incredibly difficult, and I think that there's a conception sometimes with classical music that's like, oh. We're just gonna put a microphone in the hall and it'll be fine. It that works. is not how it works. This this guy was an artist in his own right and uh, really really deserved. I mean, honestly, I, I, we should put him in the Hall of Fame uh, oh. next time. Wow, <laughs> amazing stuff. the
1: first like we had a director in the Hall of Fame. We've had composers. That's I think. true. Uh, an engineer. Interesting. Wow. Gonna think on that. Let's wrap this show up. <laughs>
0: Good call. Bad call on Opera
3: Box Score.
1: Good call, bad call is the way we're gonna take you home or wake you up wherever you are, however you're listening. We're wake you up. I
3: hope you didn't sleep through the whole thing. <laughs> but hello, we- welcome. Good morning, listeners. Good morning. Um
2: There's going to be an episode, a bonus episode dropping into this feed. It could be actually before this episode. So scroll back (laughs) one. Um, I conducted an interview with uh, Bay, Amanda Forsyth, um, talking about her recordings, mostly of 18th century music. And um, it was on a classical radio station in Chicago. And I wanted to live forever, so I, with permission from WFMT here in <laughs> Chicago, I'm ripping that material off of their server and dropping it into Opera Score for you, our dear
3: audience. So look for that. <laughs> the crime of the century. Matt Cummings. I
4: I saw this week that the uh, the PR machines are starting to whir around Lisette Oropesa's new album of Mozart concert operas, a concert arias, that gets released next week. So I'm going to be looking forward to that.
1: Weston Williams still dreaming about Abbey Road. Mm. Ashley Hardgrave.
5: (laughs) Uh... Friend of mine, not necessarily of the show, and uh, Barahunk, noted Barahunk, Jonathan Beyer, uh actually <laughs> went back for the current season on Food Network of Worst Cooks in America All Stars. Uh, the season <laughs> just started last night, and he was he was on that episode. I have no idea how long he's going to be on, but it is a it is a real hoot to see an opera singer try to cook while a whole bunch of celebrity chefs are breathing down his neck. Um, also, I am super old and late to the party and a full grandma. Um, I joined TikTok. And You
3: did it!
5: I cannot get enough of it. I, I I don't post anything. I only watch other people's stuff. Not
4: yet around. anyway.
5: <laughs> I have learned so much. I have learned new ways to clean my house. I have learned a bunch of annoying dances that I never want to do anywhere. But let me tell you, if you need a full-time suck, do what everybody did four years ago and get on TikTok.
1: <laughs> Over the weekend I watched Seattle Opera's. version of Jonathan Dove's Opera Flight. It is such a great opera, and uh, this is perhaps one of the first, I think, camera operas or opera films that I've watched in the pandemic. It is a truly great product based on an insane production schedule. The closing credits tell you that the film was uh, taped in 10 days, wrapping at the beginning of March, and then released Six weeks later, at the end of April, that sort of a production schedule gave me nightmares, and I couldn't sleep. Charlize Joint plays the role of the air traffic controller, and she absolutely steals this film. Brava and bravi all around to the folks at Seattle. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, Gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast Stitcher. Just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of the OBS is A OK I M H O. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, our audio and video editor, Weston Williams. For your co hosts, Mac Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation as you decide which of your country's opera companies need more pandemic aid. We're back with an all-new show next week when soprano conductor Barbara Hannigan joins us inside the huddle. Plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more dunking on ARIA Code. Join us.